You are listening to the Israel Connection, live on JA Community Radio. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Dr. Maya Sion Sidkiahu is the director of the Israel-Europe Relations Program at MITVIM, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies, a foreign policy think tank established in 2011. MITVIM's mission is to improve Israel's foreign policy, promote Israel's regional belonging in the Middle East, Europe and the Mediterranean, and advance Israeli-Palestinian peace. Maya teaches about the European Union's history, institutions, decision-making, policy fields, especially its foreign policy and differentiated integration, and about the EU's relations with Israel at the European Forum and the School of Public Policy at the Hebrew University and at the European Union Studies Program at Tel Aviv University. In this pre-recorded interview with Maya, I discuss relations between the EU and Israel as they stand today. So I welcome Dr. Maya Sion Chidkiahu to the Israel Connection. Good to have you on the program. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Maya, as I was just saying, you're the director of the Israel-Europe Relations Program at MITVIM. Do you want to tell us uh, what that entails and what your involvements are with the EU? My aim is to promote EU-Israeli relations. I would have to say that in Israel, the public opinion about the European Union is quite negative because of political aspects, and the public is not aware, and not only the public, also people in the government, uh, who are not dealing with the EU on a daily basis, don't have the perspective, the full perspective of how vast are economic relations and different functional relations between Israel and the European Union. This is our major trading partner. It is by far the major aviation partner of Israel, tourism, uh, and so many other fields. So my aim in the past few years was to write about it, to give more knowledge about EU-Israeli relations to see what, what is the, the importance of the relations and try to promote that and offer the government some ideas maybe how to do it in a more positive way. Yeah, so you, you teach at the School of Public Policy at the Hebrew University. One of the uh, organizations you're a member of is the Israeli Association for the Study of European Integration. Indeed. The- I would also add that I'm uh, a lecturer at the European Forum at the Hebrew University, which is an MA program, and also at European Studies at Tel Aviv University. So there are a few centers in Israel, small centers who teach about the EU and about Europe and Israel. So yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, so I was mentioning about the Israel, Israeli Association for the Study of European Integration. That's one organization that you were involved with as a co-president. What did that involve? This is an academic organization, but we aspire to invite governmental civil servants and people from the industry And we would like to have a forum in which we research EU, EU EU-Israel relations, and we have a forum to discuss this issue in Israel. So it's an academic association, like every academic field in every country has this association. And this is what we try to promote, this research, but also, you know, to learn from the government what is the current relations between Israel and the EU, to try to advise to, to them if we can. It's an Israeli forum that... Uh, brings together all uh, academic people and non-academic people uh, who likes to talk about the EU. Okay, I understand. So you were just saying that uh, Israelis don't generally have a good view of the EU, but Israel has uh, a lot to offer the EU and vice versa, the EU has a lot to offer Israel. 
the relations between Israel and the European Union are generally positive on the economic level, but it seems like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a major stumbling block on the political level. And how much is that hampering further advancement of the good relations between uh, Israel and the EU? So it's a good summary. Uh, it's a good introduction to your question. I completely agree with this analysis. As I said, we'll, we leave the economic part aside because economic relations between Israel and, and the EU are really good and they're in increase uh, in the volume. So I would say usually uh, EU ambassadors to Israel and also people from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel would describe the cup as uh, 80% full, and this is the economic and functional relations. But 20%, and some would say uh, maybe more, is this political contention uh, between us and the EU with regards to the Palestinians. And this overwhelms, to some extent, the whole relations, right? This is what the public opinion is aware of by the media. And yes, this has dampened the relations to a great extent, I would say, especially in the last decade, between 2009 until 2021. There were different Netanyahu right-wing uh, governments in Israel, right-wing and central political parties in those different governments. During this decade, we can see a deterioration of EU-Israeli relations because of different decisions that the EU have, has taken when it comes to Israel. Because the, the basic position of the European Union is the same as the United States. We do not recognize Israeli sovereignty over the occupied territories of the, of the West Bank. Israel itself has not annexed and did not recognize its own sovereignty over those territories. And therefore, there is international law that should prevail and Israel should behave accordingly to international law. And it doesn't. It builds settlements, etc. So this is the point of contention. The EU is more vocal and is perceived differently than the United States in Israel. And therefore, the contention with the EU is much uh, stronger in that sense. Yeah, the Israeli government has hinted several times that an EU membership uh, bid is a possibility. But I suppose from what you're saying, um, unless this uh, stumbling block, this obstacle of uh, setting up a peace with the Palestinians is resolved, then that can never happen. I don't think that Israel could become a member of the EU ever. There were some talks in the 90s and the early 2000s, and especially in December 2013, the EU actually did offer Israel special privileged partnership. What does that say? I don't really know. The EU didn't know itself uh, as well, but it was offered to Israel and to the Palestinian in the case that they do reach some sort of a peace agreement. And then Israel, uh, you know, the react Israel didn't react to this offer at all. And the EU was kind of wanted some reaction from Israel. And then it was on the table and nobody really touched it. And I think to some extent, the high representative of the EU for common foreign and security policy, Joseph Borrell, he's like the foreign minister of the EU. He would like to re-advance this position as well, together with the Saudi Arab Peace Initiative. Perhaps the EU and the Arab countries could offer Israel some sort of normalization with Saudi Arabia, with other Arab countries, if there will be some sort of a peace agreement with the Palestinians. Uh, obviously, I don't see it in the very short uh, or even medium future, but this is something that the EU is still contemplating about, definitely. Yes, uh, membership is off the, off, the, off the record, but I should say that Israel is one of the closest countries to the EU. If you take Norway and Switzerland and other uh, countries in the uh, European continent, 
they are part of the single market to some extent. If you look at countries outside of the European continent, Israel is one of the countries with the most deep connections with the EU in many vast programs. Yeah, we had a, a former Italian prime, uh, prime minister or president, I'm not sure, uh, Berlusconi, who just uh, passed away this week, who was a strong advocate. Indeed, so Silvio Berlusconi, when he was prime minister of Italy, he did propose Israel would uh, join uh, the European Union. That was in the 90s, if I remember correctly. Uh, Victor Lieberman, when he was, I think, um, well, he was a minister, but that was over also in the 90s. Uh, did say something about that and Benjamin Netanyahu. But this is really off the table. It's it's not something that is doable. Uh, we are not sitting in Europe and, and this will just not uh, not happen. We can, I think the Israeli government as a vision for the government should aspire to make this connection the, the strongest possible because we get a lot of benefits from being close to the EU. So we should have a vision and the Israeli government is lacking a vision, is lacking a very clear policy what to do with the EU. We handle the relations, we react to the relations, we are not proactive and we definitely don't, don't have a vision when it comes to EU-Israeli relations. The government or the cabinet uh, of Israel never had a meeting uh, trying to assemble such a vision or even a policy. So this is really lacking in, in Israel. Yeah, one of the uh, real uh, problems with the relationship with the EU is the perspective that people have about the EU pouring money into developing Area C for the Palestinians. The majority of Israelis, according to the last elections, would probably feel uh, feel this way. And one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Omer Zanani, has uh, written an extensive paper about it. Do you want to comment about this, even though it's not necessarily uh, your area of speciality? Yeah, I will say some very basic things that are maybe not so clear when people are looking at Israel from the outside, because we do read the media, and in the media you would see a lot of Israel-EU bashing. Uh, so the media loves to uh, make the EU a scapegoat and to blame it for different anti-Israeli uh, pol policy and positions. And I think this is not fair. Why? Uh, and I agree with you, the Palestinians are the major donor to the Palestinian Authority, to the Palestinian society, to civil society in Palestine, and to uh, welfare organizations, to the refugees that are still, uh, you know, uh, being uh, taken care of by UNRWA. What would Israel do if the EU stopped one day, would stop paying the Palestinians and keep the Palestinian Authority still a viable authority? If the Palestinian Authority would collapse, if the Palestinian would not get this humanitarian aid and, and social aid, then, you know, the, their uh, situation, which is very uh, severe at the moment, economically and, and otherwise, would deteriorate in, even further. And that would be a security risk for Israel. So we, the government of Israel, is supportive and would like to see the EU payments to the Palestinians continue. There are some uh, disagreements about Area C, which is 60% of the occupied territories, what should or would have been uh, the Palestinian, maybe a state, according to the Oslo Agreement. So 60% of the, the area is where only 10% of Palestinians actually live. Most of the Palestinians live in area A and B, which are the Palestinian cities. And in this 60% of the area, this is the place of contention where there are 
clashes between settlers and Palestinians. And this is actually where also most of the contention about Palestinian uh, receiving EU donations and EU uh, funding to have electricity, to have water that are drinkable, to have schools for the kids. You know, this is something that Israel is supposed to give to, to every Palestinian kid, the, the ability to have education, basic education. I know that the Israeli government would very much like this EU funding to continue. It obviously, no Israeli would like the funding to reach terror organization. And here Israel should work together with the European Union, who also does not want the, their money, the taxpayers' money of Europeans, to reach terror organizations. We have a lot of agreements and we have some areas of disagreements. And I think the right wing political side in Israel wants to make this contentions because the EU funding does help the Palestinians in Area C. The settler movements would like to see as many Palestinians leave Area C and move to Area A and B. There is a lot of sort of war between the two sides going on. Yeah, I mean, I've been reading um, a paper that was put out by Edwin Black from uh, the Bagan Sadat Institute. And uh, just quoting, he says that he calls these illegal Palestinian settlements that are being built in Area C and they're pouring hundreds of millions of euros annually into the area the, the EU is doing. And according to the Oslo Accords, only Israel can issue construction permits in Area C. So in joining Does Port Israel issue and does Israel issue construction permits to the Palestinians? Well, yeah, well Israel does not issue construction permits. Exactly. So what do you do with the, when the population increases? What do you do? In which homes are they supposed to live? And well, this the, is uh, the argument. The argument here is that uh, there's plenty of room for uh, Palestinians to develop uh, infrastructure in areas A and B. This is exactly the Israeli policy. This is exactly the attempt of the settler movements and the Israeli government to push those 10% of the 5 million Palestinians, uh, maybe 3 million Palestinians living in the West Bank, so 10% of them, uh, to push them to area A and B and to have the, all the Palestinians secluded in those uh, Palestinian area cities. And this is exactly, this is a question, do you support a Palestinian state? Is, it, is there a viable Palestinian state only within cities? Can this become a state? Or do you need uh, uh, the area around them to develop a country, to develop a place where people can live, to have connections between the different Palestinian cities? And this is area C. This is the area connecting between area uh, A and B. Uh, so if the state of Israel would like to separate itself from the Palestinians and to keep Israel a Jewish and democratic state, then we need to be separated from the Palestinian. Otherwise, demographically, we are already on an equal page. The Palestinians are together with the Gaza Strip. Uh, they are equal to the Jewish population inside Israel, together with the, uh, when we take the Palestinians in the West Bank, in Israel and in the Gaza Strip. The, so the numbers are equal. So if you want the Israeli state to remain Jewish, to remain democratic, you just cannot have the two together. I think in the long-term vision of Israel, the separation between us and the Palestinian is necessary. And therefore, Area C is necessary. Maybe not all of it, maybe some of it. Maybe the, there will be some territorial exchange in the desert, uh, in the Negev, as previously was conceived. I don't know the details of the solution, but some solution will have to be made. And right now, pushing the Palestinians into area A and B 
is very problematic in the eyes of the United States and the European Union. And this is the actions that they're, you know, they're trying to preserve the situation of those 10% Palestinians living in Area C and being able to, to build their homes, to have education for the kids, to have some sort of employment. And, and this is what the EU is doing. And Israel actually needs it to some extent. The EU is uh, preempting a, a solution along the lines of what you've been talking about, a two-state solution of some form. According to the Oslo cause, wasn't there meant to be a coordination, though, between the uh, the EU and the PA? Uh, and this is not... The accords have been completely brushed aside here and, and it's just helpful. I disagree. You do, you do what you can. I actually... Look... Not acting according to the Oslo agreements happens by the Israeli side and happens by the Palestinian side. So this is exactly the, the contention, the area of contention as we spoke about. It's area C. So both sides try to maintain their positions in, uh, on the land, right? So I, I don't really have anything to, to add uh, to what we further discussed on this issue. I do note, though, uh, that uh, it was in, with interest that the Knesset actually passed a motion or did not pass a motion back in March to annex the Jordan Valley. And it was quite a, quite a significant um, uh, number of uh, Knesset members who opposed the annexation. So it uh, looks like the government's I'm a long, long way away from, do, from achieving this. I'm speaking with Dr. Maya Sion Chidkiahu, the director of the Israel-Europe Relations Program at Midvim, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. In March, as I was referring a moment ago, a bill to apply Israeli sovereignty in the Jordan Valley was proposed by the opposition but knocked down by the Osma Yehudit and religious Zionist parties in a vote of 65 against and 14-4. The bill was proposed by the Israel Beitenu party led by member of the Knesset, Avigdor Lieberman. I return now to the second half of my interview with Dr. Maya Sion Chitkiahu. I'm actually not aware of what happened in March, but in August 2020, that was when the Abraham Accords broke up, and that was the sort of exchange by the United uh, Arab Emirates was that Israeli government would stop annexation of uh, the Jordan Valley, or it wasn't very clear exactly what area, but Jordan Valley, let's assume. Uh, so Israel would stop annexation of very of part of the uh, area C. And in exchange, the Arab, uh, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain would recognize uh, the state of Israel, would have formal relations with that. So this is exactly what stopped annexation back in August 2020. I'm not sure the government would have annexed the Jordan Valley if without the Abraham Accords, if they wouldn't have accord. Benny Gantz was then the Minister of Defense in the government of Netanyahu. Gabi Ashkenazi was the foreign minister. They both resisted annexation because they were aware of the uh, international uh, cost that that would put on Israel. Uh, so I think, you know, there were talks about that, but I don't think Israel would have actually done, uh, walked the walk, even though Trump was the president of the United yes. States, and he allegedly supported some of that. Now, I want to shift to a, a question uh, which relates to me first seeing what uh, you uh, wrote in uh, the Brussels Times at uh, the beginning of May. And now an EU delegation in Israel cancelled its Europe Day diplomatic reception over the planned participation of far-right Israeli Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir. Now, what uh, do you want to just give us um, some background about this and what you uh, had to say on the matter? 
on the 9th of May, this is Europe Day. Uh, it is celebrated in the U European Union and in its EU delegations across the world. The EU has 140 delegations in different places and also one uh, that sits in Ramat Gan in Israel. And every year they hold a public event. In the last few years, they also have some sort of a concert afterwards. And this is a diplomatic reception like Israel actually holds in Brussels and in other countries, right? The Israeli Independence Day is being celebrated also across the world in its embassies. So it's the same thing done here. And this is a chance for the EU delegation in Israel to demonstrate and to show and to speak about its values and what is the EU and what about the relations with Israel, etc. It's a nice diplomatic reception that usually, you know, it's not covered by the media. But every year, a minister from the Israeli government comes and he or she would address the EU ambassador and the diplomatic staff and would uh, say a few words uh, for a few minutes about EU-Israeli relations. And that's a very low-key diplomatic event. And this year, it was the first time ever that I can remember that it has become a political contentious issue because the secretariat of the government of Israel allocated without much thinking, it's, it, it wasn't by purpose, Ben Gvir, Minister Ben Gvir, to be the speaker at the EU Day uh, reception. And as the, I, I read to you what the Peter Stano, the spokesperson person for the European External Action Service has said, he said that we do not endorse the political views of Ben Gvir and his party because they are in stark contradiction with all the values and principles that the EU stands for and believes in. And, and that was a very, it was the first time, it was the first public time that an EU spokesperson or even, you know, someone from the EU delegation said it out loud about the current government of Israel, that as we know, is the most right-wing extreme government ever to serve in Israel. The EU tried to keep a low profile from the day that this government was established. Uh, in order not to be in conflict with the government of Israel, because there is a lot of uh, common interest and they do want to share, to, to continue the good relations. I would just do a little pause and say some, some other things to give some sort of a perspective. So as I've described at the beginning of our talk, uh, for the past decade, from 2009 until 2021, the, the relations deteriorated greatly. And I wrote about that as well. So, but in 2021, when the Bennett-Lapid uh, government was established, one, Yair Lapid was the foreign minister. He tried to advance EU-Israeli relations and make it a positive one. And it took him a year and a half. But by the end of his prime ministership, he ended as a prime minister. He was able to convene, to reconvene the Association Council, which is a political body between the EU and Israel, uh, for the first time after a decade that it hasn't took place. And this is a political body that uh, tries to steer ahead the EU-Israeli relations and to advance them, to upgrade them. So it was a really successful movement by Yair Lapid to make the relations much more positive. And then comes this right-wing political government by Netanyahu, Ben Gvir, Smotrich. And this is a really difficulty for the EU. And I would add another component that, as we know, in 24th February 2020, the war of Russia against Ukraine takes place. And this shakes the European Union, the whole world, but this shakes the European Union to its very core. Uh, this is a security threat to the EU. Obviously, the Ukrainians are the ones doing the fighting. 
and paying with their lives and, and everything else. But the EU takes it as a security uh, hazard. And therefore, Israel has become uh, an essence to the European Union. It, it has values and merits to the EU, in, be it in security and in intelligence security, be it in uh, when, especially when Iranian drones are being used by Russia against Ukraine, and they could be used in when Europe is afraid that it may, this war goes further and even uh, enters the, the EU territory, then it's, it's a security threat. The EU is under an, a severe energy crisis. And suddenly, Israeli gas through Egypt came to Europe. And so we are not talking a lot of, uh, about a lot of gas, but every BCM was important then. Israel became an asset to, the, to Europe. And in that sense, the EU does not want to hamper the relations with Israel and go back to the old Netanyahu days. So it really tries to preserve the good relations. And under this context, uh, when the Secretariat of the Government of Israel nominated uh, Ben Gvir to be the speaker, what the EU delegation did was trying to go inside the room quietly, ask them to change it without having uh, the media you know, know about that. But when it came to the media attention and to social networks, then this whole thing blew up. The EU was no longer able to hide. And the EU had to make a, a formal stance and to uh, have a, a position. Now, beforehand, as I said, the EU did not have any formal declaration and did not say that this uh, uh, right-wing government stand in contrast to the values of the EU. Why? Because when the EU um, adopts common foreign policy decisions, they have to do it unanimously. And there is Hungary in the European Union, and Hungary would block, would put a veto on such decisions. So the EU is not able to adopt such formal decisions. But when the push come to comes to shove, they had to adopt a decision. And that was the decision not to have Ben Gvir and preferred to cancel the whole event rather than have this person who stands in stark contradiction when it comes to racism, uh, to Jewish supremacy, to anti-Palestinian and, and other, you know, agendas that uh, Ben Gvir holds. Uh, the EU could not have him uh, standing on the stage speaking. Also, Ben Gvir wanted to go to come up in this, you know, ceremonial uh, address and to say some negative things about the EU and their funding to terror organizations or anti-IDF movement, which would be an insult to the EU at their festive event. And the, the collapse, uh, the, the collide of, of values was so stark that they were forced to take a decision. I think the Israeli government was wrong to some extent not to solve it quietly. I can also understand the Israeli government position. Taking off Ben Greer from this agenda would admit that he is an illegitimate partner to the West. Uh, but we see it in the United States. Nobody from those political parties would be admitted to have any formal meeting with the uh, uh, United States uh, government or with any other European governments. So, you know, this speaks to him itself. Uh, but this was the first time, as I said, that the EU acted to a formal position and, and spoke clearly about this issue. Well, that's how I introduced myself to you in the first place. I sent you uh, a message uh, saying, uh, isn't... Um Abbas, uh, similar to uh, Ben Gavir in terms of uh, his uh, views, uh, his racism. If I go back to an example, in 2016, I found that Abbas actually stood up in front of the EU Parliament 
and said that Israeli rabbis were poisoning, were calling to poison Palestinian water in a speech he delivered at the European Union Parliament in Brussels. Abbas has got a, a, a very bad track record, as we both know, but uh, there's hardly any criticism that uh, the PA and his uh, leadership gets from the, from the EU. I think in the last year, uh, the EU is trying to be more balanced. I agree with you that the Israeli perception about, uh, you know, how the EU treats the Palestinian uh, authority, uh, such, you know, such harmful and, and not intelligent declarations is, is less harsh than they do treat Israel. There is a double standards that Israelis are accusing the EU of. And I think the EU is to some extent learning the lessons uh, and trying to address the Palestinian Authority differently. And also what usually the EU civil servants, diplomats would say, you know, Israel is a democracy. We expect higher standards from Israel than we expect other Arab countries. And I'm not talking about the Palestinians, but about when it comes to other Arab countries around us who are not democratic. So the shared values, the democratic values, the uh, rule of law, uh, the value of the rule of law, keep maintaining human rights, minority rights. This is the, the, the shared value and the like-mindedness that the EU and Israel used to share and are still sharing and I hope will continue to share in the long uh, future. The EU expects more of, of Israel. Also, Israel is the powerful side. Uh, the IDF is the one ruling the territories. When you have Kogat, uh, you know, deciding how many buildings will be built or in which roads can the Palestinians uh, go or not go or have other sort of curfews on, on the Palestinian uh, people. Yeah, I think Israeli side should be, there should be some sort of, uh, uh, you know, higher demand from the Israeli side uh, who are ruling the Palestinians. But when it comes to such political statements, the EU should, uh, is definitely criticizing be it Mahmoud Abbas or be it other Palestinian organizations. And I think Israeli speakers shouldn't follow the Palestinian example. So when Smotrich stands in Paris and says there is no Palestinian nationality, there is no such thing, you know, this is, uh, it doesn't go along with reality. It's not beneficial to anyone, to the foreign relations of Israel. I agree with you that the EU could be more fair and more balanced. Yeah. And this is something that I think Israel in the past couple of years is advancing uh, with the European Union. And I think we, we hear different tones coming from the EU, slightly different tones, at least. I think we're running, we're running out of time. I think you've got to race off to uh, a meeting. Uh, we've uh, certainly uh, heard a lot that's uh, of interest to uh, listeners here in Australia in terms of EU-Israel relations. And I think we could have talked much more. We could have brought up the subject of uh, the EU's funding of Palestinian education uh, and the concerns over the uh, presence of anti-Semitism that's endemic in their textbooks. But that whole subject as well, which is one, I don't think that's your area of expertise, but I think we both agree that uh, we would like to see uh, the education of Palestinians uh, not be uh, enmeshed with uh, anti-Semitic uh, tropes. Or any education book in the world be a racist one. That goes to the same principle for everybody. Absolutely. Yes. I would just conclude, David, and say the following. The EU is the third economic bloc in the world after the United States and China. 
Israel is a tiny country. We're very strong in, uh, in innovation and in science, and etc. cetera. Uh, but we need the EU a bit more than the EU needs us. It doesn't mean that we don't have to stand for our principles, on the contrary. But we, we do have, uh, need to have a policy and a vision to improve EU-Israeli relations and maintain you know, some basic principles that we would like to hold. So yeah, those relations are very important to Israel. It's important to speak about them and to think about them truly. So thank you for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Maya Siron Tzitkiahu, the Director of the Israel-Europe Relations Program at the NGO MITVIM, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. My next guest is Mike Wagenheim, a political reporter currently serving as senior U.S. correspondent for the I-24 News television network, covering American government, diplomacy, religion, business and culture, all through the lens of the Middle East. Previously, Mike was based in the network's headquarters in Israel, where he covered the Israeli government and religious issues. I'm welcoming back Mike Wagenheim, a political reporter who's currently serving as senior U.S. correspondent for the I-24 News Television Network and Jewish News Syndicate. No longer with the media line. Your bio needs updating, Mike. That's right. Things change and outlets change, but the work stays the same, covering what's going on in uh, in U.S.-Israel affairs and the broader Middle East and the American Jewish community and all the craziness at the United Nations. So, um the, the 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 title at the top of the page changes, but everything else keeps rolling right along. Yes, yes you're covering all the uh, the fascinating stuff. When last time we spoke on this program, you just started out at I24 News, which was a burgeoning enterprise. So we're going back to a little bit of history. We have yeah, we haven't talked in a, in a few years. This is now uh, year number six, I think we're up to with I24 and. Boy, the, the world, and especially the Middle East, uh, has changed pretty rapidly. This was pre-Abraham Accords uh, last time we spoke, which was a, a completely different world. And, uh, you know, we don't have to talk about every day about the same old, same old story with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We can talk about more hopeful things now and more positive stories and more um, avenues for cooperation. Obviously, there are still conflicts and there are still cultural differences to get over and there's still philosophical and political differences to get over but man what a what a difference a couple of years makes that uh, Israel has at least on a bilateral level partners now throughout the Middle East that uh, can really take advantage of um, and can really utilize those partnerships to advance peace and and other positive initiatives rather than the mud that we seem to be stuck in in, in the Middle East for so long yeah, I went back to have a listen to uh, what we said all those years ago. You must have a daughter now who's nudging seven years of age. I got a daughter who's uh, almost seven and another one who's almost four. Yeah, they're growing up quickly. It's a handful, but they're absolutely amazing kids. And um, one of them just got student of the month at her, uh, her Hebrew language academy a couple of months ago. And uh, they're both brilliant kids. Fortunately, they take after their mom and their dad just focuses on the silly stuff like um, politics. <laughs> Talking to me. Yeah. That's not silly, though. <laughs> You've had a long career, Mike, as an award-winning sportscaster before getting into politics. Now, do you miss the sports? It's still sports, just in a different way. It's, it's <laughs> not played with a, a ball and a bat or, you know, a glove or whatever. But 
it's it's sort of the same theory. There are winners and there are losers, and sometimes it's a zero sum game, and there's cheating involved, and there's all sorts of uh, strategy involved. Um, so it's it, it's a it's a blood sport. It's just a different different kind than I I was uh, broadcasting for a lot of years. Yeah, a lot more at stake. One might one would have to say. For some people, for some people, sports is everything. <laughs> but yeah, on a, on a broader scale, on a more realistic scale, yeah. The, the politics and the diplomacy has more of a real real world impact for sure. Now getting on to what we are going to really get into in a bit of detail is uh, what's happening with uh, Jewish Americans and and how they view Israel today. Now Israel has shifted further to the right, we both know, and more young Jewish Americans are turning away from Israel, attempting to make Israel uh, the center of diaspora of Jewish identity is uh, is rather problematical. Uh, so it no longer appears as though Israel being a, a kind of a center of Jewish continuity or, or Jewish identity, it's now a kind of a, a threat to it with many things that are going on in Israel, especially with the judicial reforms that seems to be alienating a lot of Jews. Framing a Jewish identity has been around this negative theme of anti-anti-Semitism uh, in order to mobilize much of American Jewry so what do you see as the way American Jewry's relationship with Israel is going to go from, from here? Are we in difficult waters? Certainly it's a tense situation. Certainly there is a chasm growing. I don't think it's it's complete. Israel has certainly moved to the right for any number of reasons. But I don't think the, the current government is, is representative specifically about the Israeli right or the Israeli left. We, we, we forget very quickly that a few thousand votes the other way and, and merits gets in and we have a, a either we go to another election or we have a more centrist government so there's often made of this huge mandate that the current government has when just it, by pure math it's simply not true but still we we deal with what we deal with and what we deal with now is the the current israeli government and not what three thousand votes the other way could have or would have done Listen, anti-Semitism is is not an imagined problem for American Jews. It is a real problem. You know, I live in New York City. Uh, there's abuse on the streets almost every day of identifiable Jews. We had shootings in Los Angeles. Tree of Life trial just just ended uh, with the massacre there. This this is not imagined stuff for a, a, a purely political purpose. Unfortunately, what we have right now in American Jewry is such a divergence. Uh, between the Orthodox Jews and more liberal secular Jewry, that in order to find some sort of common ground, and uh, there's very little at this point, sometimes anti-Semitism is, is where it, it, it all meets up because everybody's dealt with it to some extent uh, during their lifetime. And it might be the only thing that actually binds, sadly enough, binds American Jewry together. Now, that's not to say that there's not some political advantage to that in taking advantage of that from Israel's side and in, in trying to connect with American Jewry through the angle of anti-Semitism. I'm not denying that that happens sometimes, but it's it's not a purely political phenomenon um, that's happening in America. In terms of the attitude toward Israel right now from American Jewry, I, I, I think there is, listen, you could always make the case for the most liberal of American Jews, a pro-Israel liberal American Jew, you could always make the case that even if you disagreed on settlement expansion, even if you disagreed on certain policies vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, you could always 
go back to the foundation of the relationship, which is we share common interests, we share common values. And no matter what anybody threw at you, you might have to defend this policy or that policy, but you always can go back to say, listen, this is not Saudi Arabia, this is not a repressive regime, this is not an autocratic regime. America has horribly behaving allies throughout the world, as any country does. It's not just America. Every country has allies that behave awfully. You can always go back and say Israel is a democratic country with a shared value, shared interest. When it becomes harder to say that, when it becomes more problematic to say that, when it becomes less true to say that, that is where that schism really starts to pull apart because all the things you could push back on to start with, now they're not so easy to push back on anymore. So I think a lot of American Jewry is still playing a wait-and-see game, hoping that things will even out, hoping that there'll be a more pragmatic government, hoping that there'll be things that the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government can find some common ground on, whether it's Iran, whether it's normalization efforts that can move the relationship in a more positive avenue. But there's no doubt whatsoever that there is concern from American Jewry, and I'm talking about from from left to right, about where that relationship is heading, how much it can really absorb, and especially concerned about a growing progressive hard left element of the Democratic Party and what it might mean in the medium to long term about the the, the, the truly bipartisan uh, foundation of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Because once that starts to fray, once that becomes conditional, it changes the whole dynamic. It's almost a day-to-day thing right now. It's almost uh, I'm dealing with things on a crisis-by-crisis crisis basis, trying to put out this fire or that fire. It's not just happening in Jerusalem. It's happening within the, the, the confines of American Jewry as well. It is particularly unnerving for Israeli-oriented approach to see the idea of boycotting and divestment and sanctions of Israel, BDS, even spreading amongst uh, young American Jews. Is that particularly disturbing? There's no doubt whatsoever. And keep in mind, it's still very much a fringe element of American Jewry, the pro-BDS crowd. Is it growing in, in, in numbers? Maybe a little bit. I don't think the, the studies are quite clear. There's no doubt there's more criticism of Israeli policies, but there's a difference between criticism and anti-Israel activity. We, we, we know there's not even a fine line. It's a very wide line between those two elements. Israel has got to do it, and this is nothing new, and it, do, it just doesn't pertain to a right-wing government. Israel has to do a better job of connecting with American Jewry. I think for so long, it was simply taken for granted because of the, the miracles in the early years of the state um, and the significance that they had on the, the parents at the time of, of young American Jews, that that would simply be passed along. We're, we're past those days. It's ancient history for American Jews, a lot of American Jews in their 30s, in their 20s. It, there's no significance there anymore. It's like the Holocaust. People talking about the Holocaust 50 years ago is completely different than the way they talk about it today. Some people don't even understand the significance of it. I think the, the state of Israel, left, right, center, rested on its laurels for too long in trying to connect with young American Jewry. I'm not talking about birthright trips or, or something like that. I'm talking about on a, on, a, on a deeper level. 
in terms of, listen, the, the things that Israel is doing that you want to call progressive in terms of in terms of healthcare, in terms of medicinal developments, in terms of agricultural technology that's helping third world countries, food technology that's eliminating the need for animal products in, in food. Yeah, you can go on down on. the list. These should be things that appeal to young progressive Jews. And Israel's still still trying to sell the same old story about what it is and and, and who we are. And it doesn't work anymore. The messaging has to change, and Israel just hasn't kept up, and we're starting to see slowly but surely the impact of that now. Yeah, I think it's a good segue into my next question, uh, which refers to the negative reactions to Amichai Chikli's role as Israel's Minister for Diaspora Affairs, the man who's at the helm, supposedly, for uh, keeping uh, Jewish Americans and Jews across the whole diaspora in, in a happy state as far as Israel is concerned, but uh, there seems to be a lot of negative reaction to his uh, behavior. So what you have generally in Israeli politics, um, and those who follow it already know this, you have a coalition that comes together and portfolios, ministerial portfolios are doled out, not oftentimes based on experience in a particular realm, whether it be transportation, whether it be energy, what have you. Only the high-level jobs, prime minister, defense minister, usually based on leadership and experience, maybe a couple other portfolios. The one further down the chain are just doled out to party interest or just to give somebody a portfolio to make them feel important or what have you. Diaspora affairs has always been on the lower level, which is a problem to begin with, uh, in my opinion. Of course, I'm a little bit biased having come from the diaspora, but the portfolio was meant to be given to somebody who really appreciates that particular sector. So we've only had three diaspora affairs ministers. The first one was Naftali Bennett, who grew up in America, grew up in New Jersey, under, and, and business-wise made a fortune in America. The second one was Nachman Shai, who had experience as a, as a, a diplomat, as a spokesperson, dealing with specifically with the diaspora for a long time. That was, that was his, his main role. And now you have Chickley. Now, his father's a, a rabbi in Mexico. Um, I think there is some value that he places on the diaspora, but he is very much an Israeli-centric person and sees things from not only an Israeli perspective, but a certain point on the political spectrum of an Israeli. And I think there is a, a, a perspective there that is too small right now a worldview that is too small to really understand what the diaspora is about, what their interests are about, and to understand that everybody that is to the left of you is not anti-Israel, is not even necessarily anti-Netanyahu government. They just might have different perspectives on certain policy positions, different philosophies. But there is such an element right now within the current Israeli government that says, that anybody is, that is to the left, anybody who disagrees with us is A, to the left, because they disagree, by definition, they're to the left, and because they're to the left, their opinions should be discounted. That is almost the default position right now, this current government. And Shikli runs with that. He partakes in that worldview. You can't, you can't connect with a diaspora like that. You simply can't. And so he has had his controversial statements 
in dealing with the diaspora. He has had his confrontations, flat-out confrontations, in dealing with protesters in New York a few weeks ago. I don't want to say he's not a good fit because he's still new to this thing. Everybody's not a perfect fit when they take the job. Hopefully, he'll adapt. Hopefully, he'll understand his role a little bit better. But for the time being, he seems out of his element in, in what the job is actually supposed to be, which is not to protect the Israeli government, not to protect a, a, a strictly right-wing view, but to connect with the diaspora to make sure that they are connecting to Israel. That's what it's supposed to be. And I'm not quite sure that he's he's grasped that yet, or even if he even if he wants to. Time will tell. Yeah, I don't uh, really take track with these uh, organizations who say that we shouldn't really be saying anything about him because we shouldn't be interfering in Israel's uh, internal affairs. I think this is very much an issue that's right in our lap in the diaspora, and we have every right to uh, speak up about it. I, I don't. I didn't know if that was a question or a statement. No, that's, but that's I, my I, statement. That's I, I would. I would endorse that that <laughs> statement. It, it, no. I don't think it's up to American Jewry or diaspora Jewry to just butt out or blindly support. And that goes for the left or the right or the center. Yes. I, I, I think in order to really be passionate about something, in order to really be able to wrap your arms around something, you have to care about it to the level where you're concerned about it at times and concerned about the direction it's going in. Blind, blind love doesn't really apply here. Blind faith doesn't really apply here. And so I think it's important that that American jury, the diaspora jury, maintains direct involvement with what's going on. Ultimately, the Israeli government is sovereign, and ultimately the Israeli people are sovereign. And if you if you want to vote, move there. I'm in full agreement with that. You want to vote, move there, make Aliyah. But in the meantime, I don't I don't agree with this sentiment that you should just completely disconnect yourself from the day to day and simply throw money or throw support out there. That that's not that's not what what support really is in the end, and one man's opinion. My opinion too. How do you see Israel's celebrations of 75 years of its independence? How it, we've now come through that period. Was there a certain muted joy being expressed, a subdued response because of concerns of what is going on in Israel at the present time? I'll tell you a story. I was a few weeks ago at a celebration in Washington, D.C., uh, where the Israeli embassy held its 75th anniversary uh, event. And the vice president of the U.S., Kamala Harris, spoke at that event. 99% of the event was joyful, was celebratory. Everybody was in a good mood. There was very, very little talk of the tensions, of the problems. It was it was a party atmosphere. And the vice president spoke largely about the, the ironclad support of the U that the U.S. has for Israel. She told a story about her growing up in the San Francisco area. Going, she didn't explain the, the, the origins of it, but she said she used to go out with the blue boxes that supported you know, JNF, the Jewish National Fund, to plant trees in Israel. She was collected money for it, revealing that story for the first time. At one point, while she was describing the common bond between the U.S. and Israel, she turned her head to the Israeli ambassador to Washington, Michael Herzog, and she said, we're based on these values, ABC. She turns and says, as the ambassador has said before, an independent judiciary. It was the one, one element of the entire evening that even hinted at some tension in the relationship. 
And guess what was the headline that came out of that event? It's not hard to figure out. That comment was the headline. And as soon as I heard it, I knew as a reporter, I said, that's the headline right there. That's what's going to be reported on. It's what I reported on because it stood out more than anything else. I think there is sometimes an over-focus, a, a, a hyper-focus on the tensions at the expense of all the things that are really ironclad, all the things that are really foundational about the relationship. So there's no doubt sometimes those tensions are hyped up. But they're not fake. They're real. And that that moment for Kamala Harris to say it in the way she said it for effect meant something. And it means that the U.S. is not happy with the direction of the Israeli government and is not shy about saying it. Those things were in past years kept behind closed doors. They were talked about within the confines of meetings. Now it's in your face. Now there are statements coming from the State Department comments coming on the the tarmac from President Biden about not inviting Prime Minister Netanyahu to the White House. These are out there. They're in the public domain, and they're not going to be overlooked. Is there a hyper-focus on them? Yeah. But you can't just brush them aside either and say, hey, they, they, they don't exist. Let's just talk about the good stuff. So back to your question, 75 years, a lot to celebrate, but the problems can't be swept under the rug either. Well, it's been really great uh, talking to you today, Mike. Uh, I think that uh, we should catch up a little bit more. Uh, I think six years has been too long. Uh, It's really uh, a real pleasure having uh, a chance to catch up with you and hear what you have to say. You've got a real neat perspective uh, from where you sit. It's a great perspective, and I get to see it from all angles and got to see it from Israel for four years, and it really provides a um, a complete perspective when you see it as an Israeli and you see it as an American and you understand both sides and where they're coming from. There's good faith on both sides. There's great people on both sides. They don't always agree, but I think there is still a true love there between American Jewry and, and Israel. This is a test, but I think both sides in the end are going are gonna to pass the test. That's at least my hope going forward. Good stuff. Thanks very much again, Mike. Thanks so much, David. You've been listening to an interview with Mike Wagenheim, senior U.S. correspondent for the I-24 News television network, talking about the ailing love affair between American Jews and Israel. You can listen to this program or any previous programs by going to the JAIR website, j-air.com.au, and looking for the Israel Connection under podcasts on the main menu there. If you missed any of today's show, you can catch a repeat of it on 88FM on Fridays between 1 and 2 p.m. Also, please consider supporting what we do here at J-Air by becoming a member. Just go to the J-Air website to join. It only costs $54 per annum and will help us keep broadcasting for your benefit 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.